Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. It's been so long since we've been in the book of Joshua. I almost feel like we need to go back to the very beginning and just remind ourselves of where we are. I think it's been uh, six or seven weeks now since the last message in Joshua and all these other things that were going on. But we come back to this tonight and have about, uh, I think, maybe two more messages after this evening's message in this book. Uh, Joshua chapter 23. Uh, Hopefully you'll remember that in Joshua chapter 1, our study began with the death of Moses. And in that chapter, you have God's call for Joshua to to come and lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And in chapter 1, Joshua was given a charge, and he was told that when he went in to possess the land, that every inch of ground that was promised to Moses, that would become Israel's possession. Joshua was told to be courageous. He was told to stand on God's word, to believe in God's promises. He was told never to depart from the words of the law. And the scripture says that if he stayed in that law, if he was obedient to it, then there was no enemy that could stand before him. Well, after receiving all of those commands, uh, Joshua gathered all the people of Israel together. He passed through and, and told the leaders of the people to go through all of the people there that were waiting on the eastern side of the Jordan, ready to go into the promised land. And he said, prepare them to go in and to take this land. And of course, God helped them to do that. They did enter into the land. Now, I hope you, you remember that way back in the very beginning as we were talking about that, that we, we talked about how crossing the Jordan is in some ways emblematic of, of the death of Christ. Joshua told the people to prepare. He said, in three days we're going to pass over. And then when those three days were over, the people passed through the waters and they came out on the other side. And that was emblematic of Jesus in his death, that he went through death and in three days he arose from the grave. Well, somewhere between uh, 20 to 23 years had passed uh, since the land was conquered. Now we see Joshua in the end of his life. About 30 years had passed since the crossing of the Jordan. And so once again, uh, Joshua calls the leaders of Israel together and he wants to prepare the people to tell them how they can hang on to this land. So Joshua calls them all together. There's actually two addresses that Joshua made in the end of his life. One address was to the leaders of the people, and the other one was to the entire congregation of Israel. Here in chapter 23, we're going to deal with Joshua's address to the leaders. How are these people going to hang on to this land that God has given them? We're going to start here by reading the first eight verses of Joshua chapter 23. I want you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We'll start reading with verse number 1. And it came to pass a long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. And ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight and ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. Be therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses 
that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left, that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We thank you for this great book of Joshua. We ask you, Lord, tonight, help us to learn something from your word, uh, something here that we can apply to our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How are these people going to hang on to this land that God has given? Of course, God was very faithful to the promise that he had given, and he was very gracious to fight for Israel, even when there were enemies that were far greater than they were, and, and, and the uh, firepower of those enemies seemed like they could defeat Israel at any time, and yet God always helped them through all of these battles that they encountered. When they needed a miracle, God was ready to give them a miracle. But here in the, in the end after uh, Joshua's life, after Israel uh, had conquered the land, God did not intend for these Israelites to sit down and to forget how this had taken place. He didn't want them to forget how this land became theirs. Now, I'm going to just throw this in, in passing this evening, and it's not really a part of the message, but I think that there are many Americans who have forgotten what it really took to make this land ours. I mean, the freedom that was fought for, what, what it took to make our, our nation great. And when our forefathers uh, began this nation, they had dependence upon God, and they never would have tried to do what they did. They never would have, have tried to begin this country if they did not think that God was in what they were doing. Joshua here explains in this chapter what it takes to hold on to the possession of Canaan. Now, what does Joshua show them? I think there's actually three directives that we can draw from the passage this evening that shows us how God works with his people and how they could actually hang on to the land. First of all, God's work in the past strengthens for the present. It's amazing when you read the word of God and you see so many times that God says to remember. God says to his people, remember. Remember what I've done. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses was going over the Ten Commandments once again with the children of Israel. And he told them in one particular place there why they ought to keep the Sabbath day holy. And he said, remember, remember that you were a servant in Egypt and God brought you out with his mighty hand. And so he says, you need to honor God with the Sabbath. In chapter 7, he gave them reasons why they shouldn't be afraid to go in to possess Canaan. He said, remember what the Lord God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. All the way up into the time of Nehemiah, uh, and, and Nehemiah actually closes out Old Testament history, Nehemiah would go back to the history of Moses and Joshua and the conquest of, uh, of the land of Canaan, and he told the people to remember what God said, remember what God did. In between those times, the prophets were telling people, remember what God has done. David praised God and he said, remember. He said, keep looking back to all those times that God was there for you and God delivered you from your enemies. Remember what God has done. And that's what Joshua says to the leaders of Israel. In verse number 3 of the text, he says, And ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. And so, in effect, what Joshua is saying, don't forget how you got here. When there are times of troubles in the present, when there are uh, troubles that are looming on the horizon, he says, don't forget the past victories. God was there for you then, and God will be here for you now. 
And so the gist of the message is that you can continue on, you can press on, because you know what God can do. Now that's exactly what we would expect, Joshua would say. If he's going to give them hope for present victories, if he's going to uh, give them hope for future victories, then the natural thing for them to do is to go back and to draw on the past experience. He says, you've seen it all before, so you ought to have faith now. Now that seems like an obvious thing for him to do. And there's a great principle that goes along with this. Now, I've noted this on your listening sheet tonight. A principle to hang on to. And it is faith is built on evidence. Faith is built on evidence. And I don't think that there are many Christian people who really understand this. Because when you start talking about faith, most people think that you're you're talking about something totally subjective. Faith, they believe, is just a state of the mind. I mean, faith is, is when, you, when you convince yourself of something that's, that's uh, not real, uh, that there's no evidence to show you, that's when you have faith. But that's never the picture that the Bible gives of faith. You hear people uh, talking about taking a leap of faith. To believe in God, that means you take a leap of faith. Well, we think that there's actually nothing concrete for Christians to hold on to. There's no evidence for it. But that's not what the Bible says about our faith. Our faith does not rest on unseen things with no evidence to support it. If you look at the Bible, the Bible contains history, doesn't it? And always, archaeology has proved the Bible to be true in its history. Uh, The Bible actually has more manuscript support for it than any other ancient doctrines. There is no, uh, documents I should say, there is no lack of evidence for Christianity. Now, one thing that we do know is that saving faith is brought about by the Holy Spirit. But that faith is an objective faith because it's complete dependence upon the work of Christ. There's an interesting thing that Jesus told his disciples. He said, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So Jesus says, you ought to believe my testimony, but if you have trouble believing that, then just look at the works that I do. Don't I prove that I'm one with the Father? And this is what Joshua is telling the the leaders of Israel. He says, this will give you strength. Just look back. Look at the evidence of what God has done. All the support that you'll ever need to know that God will continue with you and that God will keep this possession for you is in the things that God has already done. Look at the past works. Now let's bring that down, or that principle down, to how it really affects you and me. There are many Christians that fail in their faith because they still want to make faith subjective. When it comes right down to it and a Christian faces problems, the way we face those problems is often how we feel about things in the moment. We, we don't think about things that we've already seen and experienced. Instead, we get cumbered down with the problems and we get depressed about the things that we're going through and we act as if there's no evidence at all that God ever helps us through those things. I mean, I, I've talked to many Christians that seem to be on the edge of hopelessness. They're going through something in their lives and what they do is they look at circumstances instead of looking at God. And so I have to remind people to look at the past experiences. Don't you know God's come through for you every single time? So why look at circumstances? Keep your eyes on God. 
So Joshua knew there's times of trouble that are coming. Israel would look at their neighbors and perhaps they would look at their prosperity. They would see that uh, these people were in idol worship and they would see how sincerely that those people worship their gods. And there would be times when they think, wouldn't that be great for us, us to have a god that we could see? Why can't we just have an idol that we can look to? Something visible, wouldn't that be better? And they just feel like that would be the right thing to do. Christians today, churches today, do the very same kinds of things. They try to build faith on emotions. They're looking for manifestations of the Spirit. They want to hear speaking in tongues. They want to see healings. And people like all of that because that really feels good to them. Christianity is never built on feelings and emotions. It's an objective faith. And I've told you many times before that if your salvation was based on the way that you feel, most of the time you probably wouldn't feel saved at all. You wouldn't think that you're saved. So Joshua tells the leaders, don't forget what God's done for you. Draw your strength from that and hang in there no matter what comes. Well, the next directive is found in verse number 16. When ye have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given you. So the second directive that we find here is that God's warning of the future strengthens for the present. The Bible has many different warnings of the future that would deter us from wrongful acts today. I mean, my goodness, you read the book of Revelation and you see all the terrible things that are going to happen when, when Jesus comes back and tribulation sets in on this world. When you see things that are going to happen here that's never been seen before, what it ought to do is to cause our hearts to seek the one who can deliver us from all of that. But the truth of the matter is that the Bible's warnings don't really mean much to anybody who hasn't had their heart illuminated to the gospel of Christ. They just don't see that. But those of you that are Christians, what you ought to do is read in Revelation, read in other places of the Word of God, keep examining yourselves and testing yourself to see if you're in the faith, if you truly are a believer. Because certainly you don't want to experience those things. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? W.A. Criswell wrote on that verse, and he said, This verse is not intended to rob believers of the assurance and security of their salvation. It is, however, intended as a warning to those who would follow false teaching and adopt a lifestyle that is inconsistent with the message of recon reconciliation. To persist in either activity is a cause for serious introspection and testing to see whether or not one is truly in the faith. And that fits exactly with Joshua's words in chapter 23. To follow the false gods of the heathens, if Israel did that, that was proof that God is not dealing with spiritual followers. And so that would tell them they don't deserve the land. And so Christians today, when, when you mix it up with false teachings and when Christians go into immoral lifestyles, we better examine ourselves. We better see, check it out, see if we really are in the faith. And if there is no chastisement, then there's no cause to think that you're actually a believer in Christ. So what is it that happens to a person when he begins to walk away from the Lord? What, what happens to that relationship that you have with Christ? Now, 
I, I've, I've talked so many times about this before. Let me just remind you here. We're, we're talking about fellowship with God and not losing the relationship with God. So what happens when you, when you are a Christian and you begin to walk away from the Lord? Well, the first thing that happens to you is you lose power with God. We see this in verse number 13. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. How did Israel get where they were? God drove out the enemies. God's the one who's on their side. And if any of them thought, well, we've conquered this land because of our might, because of our abilities, all they have to do is go back and see what happened when they rested on their own power. Remember that little incident at Ai? Joshua had just defeated the, the, and the city of Jericho. The walls fell down. Ai comes up next, and, and instead of the people consulting with God to see what they should do next, the people just decide, we don't need to talk to God. We're, we've got two or 3,000 people, 3,000. We'll send them up there against Ai, and that's sufficient to conquer that city. And when they got there, they were defeated. And what they very quickly found out is that there wasn't any victory that was ever won on the strength of Israel's armies. It was God who did that. So Joshua tells them in verse number 12, if you decide to mix it up with Canaanites, and you decide to, to uh, uh, make friends with them and intermarry with them, then be prepared for God to withdraw his power from you and you will not hold on to this land. In our churches all across America, we have people that, that really like what the world has to offer. They like the glitz and glamour of things like the purpose-driven church. They love that. They love the lifestyles of the raunchy and foolish. And, and they really, they, they don't like these strict principles that we find in God's word. And so what happens? the church ends up in apostasy and they lose power with God. That really ought to give us pause. I mean, we really ought to stop and think about what happened to churches that lost their power with God. Now, here's a warning that we find in Scripture, and we need to let God's Word speak to us. Jesus told the church at Ephesus, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly... And will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except that repent. Thou repent. Some time ago, a few weeks ago, on, in our Sunday morning forum class, someone asked me, "What happened to the churches of Asia? I mean, why didn't those churches of Asia survive? I mean, the ones we're reading about there in, in the first part of the Book of Revelation." And the answer to the question is that that God did not promise perpetuity or, or perpetual existence to, to all churches or any individual congregation. And so what happened to the churches of Asia is they began to get away from God. The seeds of apostasy and heresy were, were sown in those churches and they didn't remain true to God and so they're not in existence today. And the same thing is true of Berean Baptist. If we do not hold on to the truths once delivered to the saints as the Word of God says, then we can expect that we're not going to be here uh, this church can fade out of existence. Jesus may come back and this church is not even here. Now, many Baptist churches today, I think, have lost the power of God. And what they're doing, well, they're still adding members, they're still growing, but the truth has long since departed from them and, and they have no more power. You know, it's just like the Jews as they were worshiping in the temple. Uh, at the close of the Old Testament period, there was 400 years before we get into the New Testament. And for 400 years, there was no word from God. And yet, you know what Israel was doing? Still worshiping at the temple. They were still 
making their sacrifices just like God was there. And they had no idea that God had long since departed. You know, today, you can have a church that has Baptist over the door, and that really doesn't mean anything at all anymore. I mean, we're even thinking about some churches, Baptist churches, have even given up the name Baptist, not because they're in apostasy, but because the name Baptist doesn't really describe what Baptists have always believed anymore. And so people have gone away from the truth, uh, truth of what the forefathers uh, uh, of, our, of our churches actually believe. Just like Israel, I mean, having the name Jehovah God, a, a name up there over their temple, that didn't guarantee that Jehovah God was still there. We have to stay true to the principles of the Word. Now, the second thing that you lose when you walk away from God, you lose His protection. You lose the protection of God. You ignore warnings and you lose God's protection. This is what he says in the next part of verse 13. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. As long as you're walking with God, you've got all of those allies that we talked about from the book of Ephesians. You've got God on your side. You've got the angels on your side. You've got God working for you. They, they help you to win spiritual battles. But if you drop the guard, if you begin to mix it up with the devil's crown, then what God does, he removes that hedge of protection. You know, poor old Samson found that out. Remember the story about Samson and how he was a Nazarite unto God? He had a special vow that he had taken. He was supposed to keep that. But he broke the vow. He went after Delilah. And you remember that when he told Delilah his secret, the secret of his, of his hair, he said, cut my hair and uh, I, I, I'll lose my strength. And so he mixed it up with a Canaanite woman and that's exactly what happened to him. She had his hair cut and Samson lost his strength. Well, the truth of the matter is, his strength had nothing at all to do with his hair. And some of you would be very weak if that was the problem. I mean, if your strength was related to your hair. Samson's strength was not related to his hair. It was related to his vow. The vow that he'd made to, to, to do what God told him to do. But Samson's strength was zapped from him when he broke the vow. And so he ended up with his eyes put out by the Philistines. And that's all because he joined up with a Canaanite woman. He lost protection. Third thing that you lose when you walk away from God, you lose the peace of God. Let's go back here to verse 16. Joshua says, The anger of the Lord shall be kindled against you. He says, If you disobey God, then you won't have peace with God. Instead, you'll be under the wrath of God. Now, remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he found the people worshiping the golden calf. We've talked about that in the sermon this morning the past couple of weeks. Moses came down from the mountain and he found those people dancing around that golden calf. And what Moses had to do, he had to assuage the wrath of God. So Moses reminded of that in Deuteronomy 9 verse 18. He said, And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and forty nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which ye sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened to me at that time also. Moses knew exactly what it meant to have God angry. The writer of Hebrews said, 
For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, saith the Lord. Uh, unto me I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nobody wants to find themselves the enemy of God. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says about every person who is an unbeliever. John said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is why we need to examine ourselves. We have to see if we are really in the faith. The Scripture gives us warnings, and those warnings are to strengthen us to stay in the paths of righteousness. Well, we find one more directive in the passage. The third directive that we find here is that God's will in the present prepares for the future. Arthur Pink wrote, Since the past cannot be retrieved and the future cannot be revealed by man, the present is of paramount importance. For in it, the mistakes of the past may be amended and the actions of the future be arranged. Every one of us ought to be thankful that we need not be ruled by the past. Every failure that we've ever had, when we confess that to God and when we become a Christian, we can amend all of the things that happened in the past to promise or give us a good outcome for the future. We serve a forgiving God. God says that he'll forgive us of our sins. We confess those sins, he forgives us of the sin. He goes on and he, and he says that he'll cast all of our sins behind his back. He goes even further and he says, As far as the east is from the west, I've removed your sins, your iniquities, transgressions away from you. So what you do in the present, what do you do in the present to hang on, to stay in there, and to receive the very best that God has for you? Let me enumerate very quickly four paths to future blessings. The first one is, obeying God is a path to blessing. That's what Joshua was told in the very beginning. When he took over for Moses, this is what he was told. He was told to keep all the law. And he passed the same advice to the people. In verse number 6, Be ye therefore very courageous, he says, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. Now we notice very carefully, what does he say you have to do? Stay in the law of Moses. That's the standard. Moses' law is the standard for you. Now Joshua didn't say very simply to them, Hey, you know you what, you, you just need to, to live a moral life. You, you need to be a, a good citizen of the country. Try to be an upstanding person. And you know that's exactly what the world says. The world has a standard, but it's not God's standard. And they say it's all right to live up to a standard, but it's the wrong standard. God's law is actually the standard for us. And so do you know what a lot of people do when they try to define Christianity? They define Christianity by tolerance. That's what makes you a Christian. You're tolerant of other people. And if you're not tolerant of everything that people want to do, if you're not tolerant of deviant lifestyles, you can't be a Christian. You can't possibly be a Christian if you're not a tolerant person. But you know the Bible never talks about being tolerant of sin. God judges sin, and that's because he has a standard to live by. The standard is God's law, and anything less than that will never secure a healthy future. So God has the standard to live by. The next thing is, the next pathway to blessing, loving God is a pathway to blessing. Joshua points this out in verse number 11. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves that ye love the Lord your God. What does it mean to love God? 
We preach about it all the time. Lots of singing about it. We have lots of songs in the book about loving God. What does that mean? Well, here's exactly what Joshua meant. What he said here is actually a reference to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. That's the statement that Jesus referred to when he said this is the greatest of all of the commandments. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You know what he quoted? Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. What does it mean? Well, to love God means to walk in his ways. It means, it means to obey his commands, to serve God with all your heart and your soul. Obeying God and loving God are inseparable ideas. Jesus said the very same in, in John 14. He said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. We have a lot of Christians that stand up on Sunday mornings and they'll sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. They talk about loving Jesus, but their lifestyles are rotten. They sin against God. They disobey him. Any person who stands up and sings, Oh, how I love Jesus, and has not guarded his life, he's a liar and a hypocrite. Obeying God is also loving God. And the more that you obey him, the more that you find out that you'll love him. And you know why? Because that's a pathway to blessing. God begins to shower down all the blessings on you, and you realize God's love and affection. Now, if you don't, what happens? You receive the chastisement of God. And when you're receiving chastisement, it's very often hard to convince yourself that God really loves you. You ever seen Christians or known Christians that are in the middle of some trial and tribulation and God's bringing chastisement on them and all they're saying is, Woe is me. God doesn't care for anymore. anymore. God doesn't love me. So it's hard to convince yourself in the middle of chastisement. It's just like, you know, Dad, when you're younger, and he says, yeah, I'm going to take the belt out and I'm going to whale the tar out of you. And he says, it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And you're absolutely convinced that can't possibly be true. But then you find out later, after the results are in, that Dad did the right thing. And you find out that Dad really did love you. It's hard to believe God loves you when you're in chastisement. And so it's a whole lot better to find out by obedience than it is by chastisement. Now here's the third thing, a third pathway to blessing. Cleaving to God is a pathway of blessing. He says in verse 8, But cleave unto the Lord your God as ye have done this day. To cleave to something means to be firmly attached to it. Actually, the word actually it means to be glued to something. When you cleave to God's word, you are glued to that word. And when you do, that protects you from falling into apostasy. Solomon wrote in, in a verse that, some verses here that are very familiar to all of us. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So if you want to be in the pathway of blessing, and you want to receive all the, the benefits of, that God has for you, you stay close to the word. You take God's word, and you hide it in your heart. And that's exactly what David said. He said, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against God. So God's word is protection against apostasy. It, it's a pathway to blessing. So you need to cleave to God's word. Then finally, a pathway to blessing, separating for God, is a pathway to blessing. Verse number 7, 
that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them. So he says, don't join up with the other nations, don't mention the names of their gods, don't serve them, don't bow down to them. And later on, he tells them, don't marry them. Now, Israel is God's chosen nation, and, and strict separation from these Canaanites is what God demanded. The only thing that's going to preserve their morals and, and, and to keep their religion pure is not to mix in with the Canaanites. So they need to be a separated people. You know, the New Testament teaches exactly the same principle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. In 2 Corinthians, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Now, the proof that we have in the Scriptures that separation was integral to Israel's survival is the very fact that they did not remain separate. Israel did not did not pay attention to God. And so that became their undoing. Just read a little bit further. Now we're in Joshua chapter 23. Read over a few more pages and you get into the book of Judges. And what do you find out there? Israel in apostasy because they intermarried and mixed it up with Canaanites. Go on and read a little bit further. Read about the kings. And as you go on, you find out this is continually a problem. Israel is not a separated people. Read about Solomon. And we find out there that Solomon married all those foreign wives. And what happened to him? His heart was turned to serve their gods. And so when Solomon died, Rehoboam, his son, took the throne. And it wasn't long before the kingdom was divided. The northern kingdom of Israel went into apostasy. They were overrun by the Assyrians. Then 136 years later, the very same thing happened to Judah. The Babylonians came and they carried them off into captivity. Well, finally, when, when Judah came back to Jerusalem under Ezra, and when Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, do you know that this is one of the things that reminded the people of again? He says, if you want to stay here, if you want to keep this city, if you don't want to be overrun and taken captive again, then the thing that you need to do is to remain a separated people. Don't join up and marry with unbelievers. Now, let's make this the last statement for our listening sheet tonight. Take time to be holy. Now, actually, that, that's the last, the title of the last sermon that I preached in the series of Nehemiah. It was so important for these people to take time to be holy. And that's exactly what God requires for a future blessing. Take time to be holy. So what's Joshua doing here? He's telling them how to hang on to their land. How are you going to keep this place that God's given you? How are you going to be preserved as a leader? And then how are the people going to keep the possession? You have to be a holy people. You have to separate for God. And you know something? I think that those are good words for our country as well. If we want to survive, then we've got to take time to be holy. That's the only way we're going to be preserved. So we need to remember the words of Jesus. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that we get from Joshua, how these Old Testament stories speak to us and they, and they show us what we need to do today. Lord, speak to our people tonight. Prepare our hearts as we get ready to receive the supper. May we understand very clearly we must be a holy people, a separated people, and may we stay true to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.